Deceptions Podcast. Well, one of the mums of one of our students was visiting the school that day and she was walking between the buildings when the gunmen first came onto the property and were sauntering across the basketball court and they caught sight of her and started to shoot at her. And she could hear the bullets whizzing around her, but she also felt that there were guards surrounding her and she heard the bullets ricocheting off like armor. And afterwards she was saying, who were those other guards or policemen on the property? And the uh, school executive said, no, there wasn't anyone like that. So we assumed that at that point, the angels were in a guise that she could see and she thought they were guards, but she just got a slight graze on her wrist from one bullet, nothing else, even though the gunman would have only been about 10 meters away, if that, from her. That's part of an account from some otherwise sensible people about their encounter with angels. Yes, Director Mark has somehow convinced us to do the episode on angels. We'll come back to this particular extraordinary account later. For now, it's worth noting that even if you're extremely sceptical about this sort of thing, there's no avoiding angels, or at least reports of angels, across human cultures through history. Especially in the Jewish and Christian history, of course. Angels are there in Genesis chapter 3, guarding the way back to the tree of life. Joshua of the Battle of Jericho fame meets an angel just before he conquers the pagan city. It's a really interesting story because that particular celestial being, or whatever they are, says that he's neither for Joshua nor for Joshua's enemies. Angels are there in the original Christmas story too, declaring joy to the world at the birth of Christ. Theologians after the Bible, like the second century scholar Origen of Alexandria, believed angels shared in God's governance of the universe. In the fourth century, some theologians were actually proposing that Jesus himself wasn't God, he was a really cool angel, a bridge between humanity and God. The Council of Nicaea knocked that one on the head in AD 325. Good on him. Around the same time, down in Egypt, some were suggesting that certain desert-dwelling monks were actually angels, something the monks themselves, I'm glad to say, vehemently denied. The Middle Ages were something of a golden age for all things angelic. Richard Sowerby, in his book Angels in Early Medieval England, writes... Early medieval England, in fact, produced such a volume of material relating to these immaterial spirits that it would be possible, if one were so inclined, to string it together as a narrative, starting with the Northumbrian slave boys, whose faces were allegedly so angelic that a pope determined to convert their countrymen, and ending with the Norman fleet, which landed in Sussex, just as the churches of England were preparing to offer their annual prayers to the Archangel Michael. 
Angels began to fall out of favour in early modern times. Not because of the Enlightenment or secularism in the 17th and 18th centuries, but mainly because of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. The reformers connected angels with all that medieval Catholic mumbo-jumbo, and so they sidelined any discussion of angels, at least as they relate to daily life. Who needs angels when we have Jesus Christ, the only mediator? That was their basic vibe. But angels made a comeback in the 20th century, spurred on by some famous preachers like the Welsh powerhouse Martin Lloyd-Jones, who gave a detailed sermon in 1953 titled Good Angels. And someone had the good sense to record it, and the audio is preserved. You'll find a link in the show notes. Then there's the one and only Billy Graham, the American evangelist, presidential advisor, and one-time holder of the world record for the largest audience ever assembled to hear a speech. 1.1 million people live in Yodo Plaza, South Korea back in 1973. Anyway, he also wrote a best-selling book simply titled Angels, and it put angels back on the map for a lot of people. I am convinced that these heavenly beings exist and that they provide unseen aid on our behalf. I do not believe in angels because someone has told me about a dramatic visitation from an angel, impressive as such rare testimonies may be. I believe in angels because the Bible says There are angels, and I believe the Bible to be the true word of God. We face dangers every day of which we are not even aware. Often God intervenes on our behalf through the use of his angels. There are angel t-shirts, angel magnets, angel tattoos, angel sculptures, and of course, angels on the Christmas tree. There's a Pulitzer Prize winning play about angels called Angels in America. Angel names are pretty popular. Gabriel, Ariel, Raphael, Muriel, and the Archangel Michael. Not to forget Lucifer. Not that many kids are named after him. But does any of this mean that we should take angels seriously? Many would say, no way. Others would reply, absolutely. The truth is probably somewhere in between. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. This season of Undeceptions is sponsored by Zondervan Academic. Get discounts on master lectures, video courses, and exclusive samples of their books at zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write Undeceptions. Each episode here at Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, philosophy, history, science, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academic's new book, Jesus and the Powers, by N.T. Wright and Undeception's favourite, Mike Bird. Should Christianity have anything to do with politics? 
I mean, you could argue that Christians have done more harm than good once they get a whiff of power. Mike Bird and N.T. Wright address this question and other questions in this magnificent overview of the political implications of the Christian faith and the church's historical engagement with the powers and principalities. They shed light on current geopolitical events and ask what would it look like if there were a faithful Christian response to crises like the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the China-Taiwan tension, political turmoil in the US, UK and Australia, and the problem of Christian nationalism. They build a pretty convincing case that Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God confronts all forms of power, Christian and atheist, and calls on us all to support a pluralistic democracy where everyone, regardless of religion or irreligion, has a role to play in working toward the good of society. Whether you're a believer or a skeptic, I'd say this book will be an eye-opener. You can order Jesus and the Powers on Amazon, of course, or head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions to dig a little deeper and see if you really like it. That's zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Angels are ancient. The Zoroastrian religion dates back to at least the second millennium BC. Maybe earlier, but the sources are notoriously difficult to date. Anyway, this ancient religion spoke of the Fravashi, the guardian spirits who help out in the cosmic struggle between good and evil. They're basically angels. Unrelated, but part of the same melting pot of ancient ideas, archaeologists have uncovered statues of winged guardian angels in Iraq, dating to 3000 BC. Judaism and Islam both contain accounts of angelic beings intervening in earthly events. The Greek god Hermes was also known as the messenger of the gods, and the Greek word for messenger is angelos, angel. And angelos is exactly the same word used for the angel in the New Testament. It's the New Testament understanding of angels that has most influenced history, including the New Age versions of today. So let's start with a Christian expert on angels. Dr. Graham Cole is an Aussie who moved to America for 25 years or something, where he was, among other things, professor of biblical and systematic theology at the famous Trinity Evangelical Divinity School just outside Chicago. He's since retired back to Australia, but he remains an active scholar and author. He's written a bunch of theological tomes, and he's the editor of the Short Studies in Systematic Theology series. I wanted to talk to him, though, because he's also the author of the recent Against the Darkness, The Doctrine of Angels, Satan and Demons. I visited him when I was in Oz a couple of months ago in his lovely apartment in Melbourne. Our conversation started nice and simple. Graham, thanks for, for joining me, but can you give us a general definition of an angel that isn't too... Biblical, like just, just what's a broad definition of angel? A broad definition of angel, John, is a spirit, a creature that is, has been created to serve God. 
Okay, I'll go with that. And how many of them fit on the end of a pin? Good question. <laughs> They're spirits, as uh, Augustine, a great thinker in the early church, put it. By nature, they are spirits, and by office or job, they are messengers. So, no, they don't fit in space and time like a material object. Was uh, there ever really a discussion about how many angels can fit on the end of a pin? I think there was, for that very reason, to see if people had a materialistic understanding of angels. Right, oh, okay, I like it. Angels, like the question I just asked you, uh, have the air of ridiculous about them in the general public. Why do you think that is? Why is the instinct of our culture today to go, angels, oh, come on? Well, I think it depends upon the person to whom you're speaking. If you were a new age person, mm -hmm. you may be big on angels. Yeah, I want to ask you about that a little later. If you're a secularist, mm -hmm. no, except for Hollywood. Hollywood loves angels. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's touched by an angel back in the day or then supernatural or more recently, the warrior nun. Uh, Hollywood loves uh, angels and the demonic. But secular people, well, I can't touch, taste, see. My response to a secular person is, have you ever seen your own brain? For many people, angels are at best a pleasant inspiration for Christmas decorations, and at worst, one of the many delusions of the feeble-minded. But a lot of traditions have insisted on the importance of angels through history. Do other cultures speak of angels? I mean, outside the Judeo-Christian worldview? Well, Islamic culture does, of angels and demons. The idea of spirits is very widespread in the world. Uh, whether it's in Asia with ancestral spirits or good and bad spirits in African religion, the idea that there's more to the universe than what our senses give us access to is a very widespread belief and has been for millennia. So you would compare, you think that's a, a real analogy, the spirits of, say, Asian, you know, ancient Asian religion, and the notion in Judeo-Christian and Islamic belief of angels. Now, there's a, a very big difference. Uh, we go back to the idea that angels in the Judeo-Christian tradition are creatures specifically made by God for certain tasks. The chief task is the worship of God. So in the Christian view, there are fallen angels, of course, and that's another subject. Fallen angels, better known as demons, are just one type of angel mentioned in the Bible. Now, I haven't done the fact check, but the Billy Graham book I mentioned earlier says there are more than 300 references to angels in the Old and New Testaments, like this famous one from the New Testament book of Hebrews, which almost gives a job description for angels. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Thomas Aquinas, in the 13th century, wrote in his Summa Theologiae about the logic of angels. Here's what he wrote. The highest perfection of the universe requires that there should be some creatures in which the form of the divine intellect is reproduced, creatures 
of an intellectual nature. He's sort of saying, if the creator exists as pure intellect, and he made creatures like us that are body and intellect, there can be nothing illogical about God making creatures whose nature is somewhere in between humans and God. That is, creatures who have a purely intellectual rather than fleshy form. The current catechism of the Catholic Church absolutely insists on angels. Now, I'm not a Catholic, but it does represent the kind of historic Christian position at a lot of points in the catechism. In section 336, it teaches not only that angels exist, but that, quote, from infancy to death, human life is surrounded by their watchful care and intercession. And then it quotes Basil the Great from the 4th century, who absolutely deserves his own episode one day. Here it is. Beside each believer stands an angel as protector and shepherd. This is the traditional concept of the guardian angel. And apparently we all get one. I really like that idea, but I'm not sure what to make of it. You've already hit on it a little. I, I wouldn't mind you teasing it out. In the Bible, what is the key idea of an angel and the key point of them? Okay, servants, and they serve in a variety of ways. They can be involved in the process of making God known, communicating messages, uh, guarding God's people. They pop up in the Bible at key junctures like right at the beginning in the garden story, the story of uh, Israel coming out of Egypt, for example. Some of the great prophets had experiences of angels. And of course, when Jesus comes on the scene, then angels have a profile higher than anywhere else in the entire Bible. But in the Christian tradition, God the Spirit has now come into the world. Jesus, according to the tradition, has died, risen, return to God the Father, we'll come back again. But in the interim, the Holy Spirit of God has come and angels seem to go further into the background because the Holy Spirit is now here. And so does the word angel, which connects with the word messenger, capture their key task, do you think? Or um, are there other key tasks that aren't about conveying things? Well, we do have some stories in scripture of an archangel by the name of Michael combating with his entourage, the devil and his entourage. And it's in a highly symbolic book, the book of Revelation, but it's the idea of there was a war in heaven and the demonic hosts led by Lucifer or the devil was discomforted in that particular battle. So you've got this combative side to the good, involved in the story of good and evil. The angel Michael is presented as an archangel in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and the Baha'i faith. The earliest mentions of his name are found in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapters 10 through 12, but also in some 3rd and 2nd century BC Jewish works like the book of Enoch, the book of Tobit, in these texts, Michael is the chief of the angels, the guardian prince responsible for protecting Israel. Michael appears in the next century or two in the Dead Sea Scrolls, where he's the heavenly captain of the angelic army in the final battle 
of history. And something similar appears in the New Testament book of Revelation. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Revelation chapter 12. Then there's the Michael of pop culture. I just thought... Halos? Yes. Inner light? Yes. I'm not that kind of angel. What kind of angel are you? Michael is an archangel. He battled Lucifer and threw him out of heaven. Revelation 12, verse 7. Oh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> he smote a bank for me. A bank? I knew it. Money was involved, wasn't it? Oh, oh, oh I should say so. After Elmer died... Who's Elmer? My husband. After he died, they built the highway and stole all my truckers. And then the bank came to take the milk bottle. And I prayed for help until God sent me Michael. Well, she was persistent. <laughs> you came down... That's a scene from the Mike Nichols film, Michael starring John Travolta as the Great Angel. It's written by Nora Ephron of Sleepless in Seattle fame. Great movie. And in this movie, she tries to incorporate a significant amount of biblical stuff, even if Travolta comes across as a kind of redneck angel with a taste for cigarettes, beer, and sugary cereals. In the film, the Archangel Michael is sent to protect an old woman from a voracious bank. It's the old biblical battle between good and evil set in a modern context, the great evil being capitalism, I guess. One classic example of this in the Bible is from 2 Kings chapter 6. The servant of the prophet Elisha is terrified when the armies of the king of Aram besiege them. Elisha is totally chilled because he can see an army of angels. And then he prays that his servant will see it too. And it goes like this. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then we read, The Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around. Of course, it doesn't go well for the enemies. Jesus speaks of this same military idea of angels when he's arrested. One of his disciples, Peter, of course, overreacts and cuts off the ear of one of those trying to arrest Jesus. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. 
for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's Matthew 26, by the way. Legions of angels. That's military language. So I asked Graham about ranks in this army of angels. What I want to know is, you mentioned the archangel. So what is an archangel? And, and are you saying there's a hierarchy? There is a hierarchy, but the Bible is pretty reticent. There was an early church figure called Dionysius the Areopagite. People who don't like his theology call him Dennis the Menace. He came up with the view that there were three tiers of celestial beings. The highest were the seraphim, the throne angels nearest to God. And down at the bottom end are angels and archangels who relate to humanity. Now, it doesn't work in terms of the Bible story, but it's what's come later by way of speculation. So what do you think is the Bible's archangels, angels? How does it relate to seraphim and cherubim? I can only say that we know there's an archangel, which means that some kind of a leadership of angels. But as for the rest, I would have to vote a theory because the Bible is, as I say, reserved about this. And there's a very good reason for this, John. The Bible is not addressed to angels. It's addressed to human beings. And therefore, lots of stuff we want to know isn't there because they're not the major players in the biblical story. Radio. The Nephilim, have they got anything to do with angels, do you think? Is there another question you could ask me? <laughs> this, is, this is from Genesis 6. Ha, fair enough. These mysterious Nephilim turn up in Genesis chapter 6. The passage says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of mankind, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, I've never been confident I knew what this was all about. So here was my chance to ask an expert. It's one of the most challenging passages. And there are three main theories. One of the classical theories is bad angels, fallen angels, interact and marry human beings. And so you have these Nephilim, these gigantic figures. Ridley Scott in his you know, film on Noah, you know, he has a, a go at trying to imagine these beings, you know, far beyond anything that scripture would tell us. Uh, another view, though, is also going right back to the early churches that uh, these were the sons of Cain marrying the daughters of Seth, that line. And the Nephilim, or probably giants, whatever you want to call them, don't really have anything to do with it at all. And then there's a yet another view which I think is more recent, that these are the sons of God and the daughters of men. These were renowned figures, human figures, who married beneath their station. So there are several views. Uh, look, I, I honestly don't know. Uh, but Augustine said he found it hard to imagine a spirit actually having sex with a, a human being because they'd have to be incarnate. Inevitably, this leads us to the question of devils and demons, which to many seem even more implausible. Are these just bad versions of angels? Well, I guess the way they've been understood is fallen angels, rebellious angels. So how that took place, we're not told. 
There may be hints in the Bible, but again, the Bible was addressed to human beings and it deals with what is particularly relevant to us. But there appears to have been, if you like, a fall before the fall of humankind. And the serpent, we read in Genesis 3, comes from outside the garden zone and is the great spoiler of uh, paradise. So angelic beings, but now in rebellion against their creator. But the same stuff as angels, even though stuff isn't the right, the right word to use of non-corporeal things, but they are beings of the same kind. That's right. But morally skewed. Morally skewed and uh, corrupt. And the, the classic story is, is the that Lucifer was an angel who tried to take God's throne and was thrown down from heaven. And this is loosely based on a passage in Isaiah, right? But is that the right way to think of it or is that talking about something else? Well, Isaiah and Ezekiel refer to figures that appear to be supernatural figures through pride, get, as it were, cast down by God. Now, most scholars would say it's talking about ancient Near Eastern rulers, but there may be something archetypal happening here. And at that level, if it's true of an earthly ruler like the Prince of Tyre, how much more would it be true of an angelic being in rebellion against God. Again, Augustine, I'm quoting Augustine all the time. Oh, he, he makes an appearance on Underceptions yeah, all the time. Does he? Really? Oh. <laughs> and Aquinas. <laughs> and Aquinas, yeah, we've got two big ones. Pride. Paul talks uh, to Timothy in a letter about the condemnation of the devil, which uh, seems to be one of pride. But again, we run out of information pretty quickly. Yeah, okay. In what sense are these beings creatures made by God? Well, in the sense that uh, as the creator, they wouldn't exist without his creative act and his sustaining act. Because there's a mystery here as to why God doesn't um, stop the show right now and, and deal with rebellious angels. But then, of course, that would mean dealing with rebellious human beings too. Mm -hmm. People often say, I've heard it more than once, you know, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he turn up? Well, they're actually asking for the end of the world as far as the Bible is concerned. God will turn up as far as the, the biblical worldview is concerned, but that'll be the end of the show, and that'll be the end of the show for fallen angels too. According to the Bible, angels have a big role to play at the end of the world. Jesus said they would accompany him when he returns to judge the world. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's Matthew chapter 16. Then again in Matthew 13. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. According to the book of Revelation, four angels hold back the winds of judgment until God's appointed time. And seven angels will sound the trumpet signaling that God's judgment has come. And it's an angel that's given the role of seizing the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, it says, and throwing him into the abyss. This is highly figurative language, as Graham is quick to point out. But the overall impression is clear. Angels are involved in the final judgment somehow. But that is then whenever then is. What about now? 
Do angels have a role to play here and now in our personal lives? After the break, a real-life account of angels guarding people from peril. Truth or fiction? You can be the judge. Who the hell are you guys? We are the people who make sure things happen according to plan. I don't really know what's going on here. What you've just seen behind a curtain that you weren't even supposed to know existed. Must be jarring. It's not your fault. Your path through the world this morning was supposed to have been adjusted. You were supposed to spill your coffee as you entered the park this morning. You would have gone upstairs to change, you would have missed the bus, and you would have arrived at work ten minutes later than you did, and we would have been gone. I was supposed to spill my coffee. We call that an adjustment. See, sometimes when people spill their coffee, or their internet goes out, or, or they misplace their keys, they think it's chance. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's us. Nudging people back on plan. Sometimes when nudging isn't enough, management authorizes a recalibration. We deploy our intervention team, and they change your mind for you like we did with your friend Charlie. That's Matt Damon in The Adjustment Bureau, having his own angelic encounter. The film is based on a famous science fiction story by Philip K. Dick. Director Mark assures me it's a famous story. Anyway, Damon is introduced to angels who have the responsibility of nudging history in the right direction when people do things they shouldn't. They all work for the chairman, I guess is a kind of god figure, and they function as guardian angels of a sort. They make sure that people don't get hurt when they're not meant to. Psalm 91 in the Old Testament kind of endorses that idea. For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. On their hands they will lift you up so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Are there such things as guardian angels? Jesus remarked in Matthew 18, famous passage, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And this does not give rise to the idea of a guardian angel, that these children have their own angels. Is that a thing? I, I don't believe so. I don't think... Oh, so acted. disappointing, Graham. Okay, so. <laughs> well, ask a different question. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> there's a, there's a, a philosopher, a very fine philosopher, Peter Kreeft, who wrote a book on angels and... Um, if he's right, he can work out how many angels are present on earth right at this moment because there's one for every human being. But what I find the Bible talks about is guardian angels, plural, like in Psalm 91. So there is the idea of angels guarding God's people, but localizing it, as it were, to one to one. I think that's uh, building too much on too little to turn into a doctrine. So what does their that's the amazing Peter Kreeft Graham's talking about. Kreeft is a professor of philosophy at Boston College. He made a brief appearance on Undeceptions back in episode 61, Kingdom Come, and Undeceptions Plus subscribers got a full-length interview with him. Graham Cole is talking about Kreeft's 2009 book, Angels and Demons, What Do We Really Know About Them? In it, you'll find lots of provocative stuff like this. Humans are the lowest, least intelligent of spirits, 
and the highest, most intelligent of animals. We are rational animals, incarnate minds, the smartest of animals and the stupidest of spirits. Angels are our bodyguards and soul guards, but not as servants or as pets. If anything, we are like pets to them. Woo! I don't know what I think of that. Our more new age friends tend to believe in angels. You hinted at that at the beginning, probably more than some Christians. They're more conscious of it. What, what similarities and differences have you picked up in your study of angels between the New Age concept and the biblical concept? Well, the New Age concept is so inflated in terms of personalities of angels, in terms of what you can do with angels if you have the right technique, the right way of addressing uh, angels, which I think shears off into magic. You know, what, the, what Christianity offers is a personal relation to God rather than a magical one. And I think that's one reason why we don't get every prayer answered the way we want to, because I think the human heart really does gravitate to the magical and magical thinking. And all you need is the right uh, technique, the right form of words, and you can harness the power of the unseen. And I think we see that in the New Age movement. I think New Age focus are seeking to fill a void but it's a void that I think only Christ can fill. My next guests are anything but New Ages. Georgina and David Newmarch are graduates from Western universities and citizens of the secular city of Sydney. But they insist they've had a close encounter with angels. Georgina and David were missionaries in Pakistan for 15 years they were associated with the Murray Christian School, about an hour's drive northeast of Islamabad. The school's mountaintop serenity was broken on August 5, 2002, when gunmen attacked the school. The new marchers were in desperate need of a guardian. So that day was a normal day for the summertime. I was teaching a small class of kindergarten children. So I had seven children of missionaries who were, their families were working in Pakistan. And we started to hear loud banging noises. And I was thinking, it's just the electrical transformer up the pole going bang again, like it does regularly. And we were outside doing singing games, having lots of fun. And then suddenly the primary principal ran out and started gesticulating wildly and telling me to go inside. So I started to feel my heart beat and um, grabbed the kids and said, come on, come on, we've got to go inside. And I looked back and I could see two men with cloth wrapped around their heads and holding a weapon, and that was making the banging noises. It was gunfire. The kids said to me in my class, they said, Mr Newmarch, I think it's gunfire. I think we need to do something. So my reaction was to get under, say, let's all get under the tables because that's what you do when you have earthquakes there. And which really wasn't that. Just 10 minutes before the gunmen entered the school, all 150 students had been playing outside during their morning break. Six people were killed during the attack, but none of the students was injured. 
An arsenal of weapons was found by the police next to one of the school fences. And we're talking grenades, daggers, rifles and ammunition clips. It seems the outcome that day could have been much, much worse. David and Georgina say it was a miracle. Um, uh, Hamid, who was our cleaner at school, he was down the back of the school. Uh, he'd heard the noise, but he was a fair away from the noise, so he wasn't quite sure what's going on. So he just continued with unloading the rubbish. And, and then he was just starting to come back up the hill. It's a fairly slopey sort of uh, property. He was just coming back up the hill and... He, was, he felt someone grab his legs and pull him down. And just as he was pulled down, two bullets went flying over his head. The gunman had come around the corner of a building and had seen him. And he looked around and there was no one there. And then another, another friend who was, who'd uh, panicked and he was running down to the fence, uh, a very uh, high fence that surrounds the school. And he was trying to clamber over and he'd had a, um, an injury. And so he wouldn't have been able to do it. Anyway, the, he suddenly saw these uh, two guys in white, in white shower chemise, and they grabbed him and threw him over the um, over the fence. And then he looked around, and just for a second they were there, then they were gone. Another friend who was in the maintenance staff, he'd been at the back of the school and going past, just walking past the maintenance sheds. He'd heard some noises as well; wasn't sure what was going on. But then as he walked past the doorway of, of the maintenance shed, someone grabbed him, dragged him inside and locked the door. And um, he looked around and there was no one there. And would have only been a couple of seconds later, the gunman would have walked right past that maintenance mm. room. Here's the first line of an article that ran in a major Australian newspaper just a day or so after the attack. There was talk of miracles yesterday as 14 Australians pondered their survival and prayed for the dead after gunmen killed six people in a raid on a school for the children of foreign missionaries in Pakistan on Monday. Perhaps it's only natural to think, in a situation that could have been so much worse, that some higher power was looking out for you. Of course, what does it say about angels if six other people were still killed? And what about all the other school shootings that have happened before and since? Hundreds of people, including children, have been killed in school shootings in the United States alone in the past 20 years. Where were their guardian angels then? The answer is, I certainly don't know. And neither do David and Georgina. But on Tuesday, August 6, 2002... At least six people in different places around the Murray Christian School told David and Georgina that something or someone had pushed them through a door or over a fence to block them from the gunman or had shielded them from bullets. Some of the children had separately said that they had heard angelic singing even as the gunfire rang in their ears. They are confident there were angels there that day. And what might you say to my sceptical listeners who may have tuned out already in this interview, but for those who are still with us, bless you, they may be wondering, Graham seems highly educated. How on earth does he believe in angels? Well, I believe in angels for for one reason Jesus did, and I take my cue from him. I've got the view he knew a lot about the unseen world, Mm -hmm. and indeed he came from it. 
and return to it, taking his uh, humanity with him. So it goes back to my view of Jesus and his authority. It's a characteristic of the Christian mind. There's a wonderful book written years ago called The Christian Mind by Harry Blamires, in which uh, one thing he says that characterizes the Christian mind is its supernatural orientation. We believe the universe is a, is a much bigger canvas than the secularist thinks it is, because we believe there's a revelation from God. Another characteristic of the Christian Harry Blamires, by the way, was an English Anglican theologian, literary critic, and novelist, who was also head of the English department at what's now the University of Winchester. He started writing in the 1940s after receiving the encouragement of his friend and Oxford tutor, C.S. Lewis. Blamire's best-known work is The Christian Mind, How Should a Christian Think? It's still read around the world in seminaries and other Christian institutions because it calls on people who think God exists to think about the world as if God exists, not as though we are in a merely materialistic universe. Do we as Christians, he wrote, mentally inhabit the world presented to us by faith as the real world? The collision between a Christian mind and a solidly earthbound culture ought to be a violent one. Now, I've got to admit, I kind of feel that rebuke. I've so often got my head in sceptical things that I can sometimes approach the world as if it were simply matter time and energy. And that kind of world has no place for things like angels and miracles or even God. And yet, when I really think it through, I know that matter can't be all there is. There must be an underlying rational or spiritual reality. I mean, for one thing, how could there be any true and rational thought about matter if our minds are themselves just part of matter. If my thinking is just an emergent property of matter, there's absolutely no reason to trust my thinking about matter. But if there is a non-material, rational reality undergirding everything, transcending matter, in other words, God, then I get my thought back. I get both thought and matter. I have a universe in which I can believe in material things and believe that my thoughts about material things can be independently true. That gives me the spiritual world, a world of angels, miracles, God, and science. No one puts this better than C.S. Lewis. Granted that reason is prior to matter, and that the light of that primal reason illuminates finite minds, I can understand how men should come, by observation and inference, to know a lot about the universe they live in. If, on the other hand, I swallow the scientific cosmology as a whole, then not only can I not fit in Christianity, but I cannot even fit in science. If minds are wholly dependent on brains, and brains on biochemistry, and biochemistry in the long run on the meaningless flux of the atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. And this, to me, is the final test. 
This is how I distinguish dreaming and waking. When I am awake, I can in some degree account for and study my dream. The dragon that pursued me last night can be fitted into my waking world. I know that there are such things as dreams. I know that I had eaten an indigestible dinner. I know that a man of my reading might be expected to dream of dragons. But while in the nightmare, I could not have fitted in my waking experience. The waking world is judged more real because it can thus contain the dreaming world. The dreaming world is judged less real because it cannot contain the waking one. For the same reason, I am certain that in passing from the scientific point of view to the theological, I have passed from dream to waking. Christian theology can fit in science, art, morality, and the sub-Christian religions. The scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things, not even science itself. I believe in Christianity, as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Lewis Essay Collection, Faith, Christianity and the Church. We can see just so many different ways that God was watching over us that day. And yes, we believe in angels. <laughs> they each had an experience where they were miraculously saved, grabbed or shoved or whatever. And even myself, like normally at that time of day, I would have been with the, the children on the basketball court, which is right at the front gate where the gunman walked across. but. For various reasons, I didn't have time to get all the equipment out for our PE lesson. So that's the reason I was elsewhere on the campus, not near the front gate. But if we had been there there's doing PE, there's no way I could have rounded up seven excited five-year-olds and got them to safety. But the Lord had us in another place just on that one day. So I saw that as a miraculous rescue. And the mm. fact that the gunman, we found out later, had been planning this for months and they were going to come at recess when everyone was outside, but they got there late and everyone was back inside except my little class and one other class. But the teacher who was with that class had lived in Afghanistan and from the very first shot, he knew that it was guns and knew the danger and it was year six and he said to them you know run now and they were they ran <laughs> i'll never forget that day and it's it's just convinced me that there are definitely angels around and you know uh, it's interesting how different times i've heard people say oh, you know there was someone who came and and helped me there i don't know who it was but and i never saw that person again do you ever find yourself thinking about angels in, in daily life? I, I don't just mean theologically. Of course, you wrote a big book on this topic. But I mean, I don't know. Do you ever think, oh, Lord, send your angels to do this? Or, you know, I wonder if that was an angel. Do you, in your actual experience? Uh, well, I've not um, ever found myself saying, well, maybe that was an angel that I got that parking spot. But... <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a brother-in-law, very sick with Alzheimer's. I was by his bed yesterday. He's a Christian person, but he's no longer verbal. 
um, no longer mobile. And I just said, Lord, compass him about with your holy angels. You don't pray to angels, but you can pray to God the Father about angels. I love it. Beautiful point to end. Graham Cole, thank you so much. My pleasure, John. Hey, we're nearing the end of the season. And I want to put in a special request, if that's okay. If you like our show, would you consider chipping in to help us continue to create content like this? We hope to be around for years. We certainly have years of episodes we'd love to make, but we need your help to maintain the staff and the production. You can do a couple of things. You can head to underceptions.com forward slash plus to become a plus subscriber and get loads of bonus content for just $5 a month. But if you're feeling particularly fond of us here at the end of the season, would you go to our landing page and click the large donation button and, you know, just see what thoughts come next. We could really do with a boost. That's underceptions.com and find the donation button. The whole team really appreciates it. And while you're there, send us a question and I'll try answer it in our upcoming Q&A episode. See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Michael Hadley. Sophie Hawkshaw is on socials and membership. Alistair Belling is a writer and researcher. Siobhan McGuinness is our online librarian. Lindy Leveston remains my wonderful assistant. Santino DeMarco is chief finance and operations consultant and editing is by Richard Humwee. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Underception possible. Underceptions is the flagship podcast of Underceptions.com. Letting the truth out. An Undeceptions podcast. I won't lie, I was hoping for Angelic Mark Hadley, but... <laughs>